come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode number 91 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here, I'm going to have Odyssey Through the Ones number 18, as I'm going to have featured reviews of Lucky, which got a interesting kind of release, but it's getting its full release here in 2021. And then the 1941 film that I'm watching is The Spell of Amy Nugent. Those will be the two featured reviews here on this episode. Trying to sync up some, you know, double feature here. Doesn't necessarily work out as well as I would like, but I think it does make for an interesting one regardless. And also on this episode, I have more of the Summer Challenge series films as well as a new one that I have mini reviews of Take Shelter, Your Next, Coldfish, Old, and The Woman. So with that taken care of, I'm going to get you over to monthly review so for the month of july here i have watched 40 total films of them 33 are horror six are considered new horror and getting its release here in 2021 percentage of horror is 82.5 percent and the horror movies that i watched are only lovers left alive the forever purge spontaneous combustion hatchet 2 the face behind the mask Come True, Hatchet 3, Final Prayer, Under the Skin, The Ghost Train, The Hunt, The Power, A Field in England, The Devil's Reign, Curse of Chucky, The Lords of Salem, Evil Dead, the remake from 2013, The Smiling Ghost, Caveat, The Purge, Lake Mungo, Juan of the Dead, Attack the Block, Kill List, The Cabin in the Woods, Take Shelter, Lucky, The Spell of Amy Nugent, Your Next, Coldfish, Old, The Woman, and Creep 2014. Now, 13 countries are represented with United States, United Kingdom, Germany, Greece, France, Mexico, Canada, Switzerland, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, Spain, and Cuba. Now, the 2021 watches are The Forever Purge, Come True, The Power, Caveat, Lucky, and Old. The oldest watches on this are... All from 1941 of The Face Behind the Mask, The Ghost Train, The Smiling Ghost, and The Spell of Amy Nugent. The average year is 2003. 
the highest rated that I watched is Kill List at a 10. And then the lowest rated is actually not on this feed. I'll get to that in a minute, but it's Spontaneous Combustion. Now, the average rating of everything that I've watched in July is 7.5. Now, the ones not on this feed are Spontaneous Combustion, are a part of the Movie Club Challenge over on the podcast Under the Stairs. The Devil's Reign is technically on this feed, but that was part of SideQuest Podcast. And then Lake Mungo is going to be appearing on an upcoming episode of Where to Begin with Found Footage and Mockumentaries. Now, my July totals as compared to in the past here is that this is the most I've watched for like new films that were released that year with, you know, six, which the other previous high was at five. And I've watched 18 new horror films in the month of July over the past four years. Now, horror films, this comes in as my third lowest total as it looked like in 2019, I'd watch 56 in July where... My 33 is coming in less than last year's 34. Now, as for movies watched, this is actually tied, though, where, once again, in July of 2019, I'd watched 58. This year, I'd only watched 40, which is tied with last year. And it looks like for totals there is I've watched 143 total horror movies in the month of July over the past four years and 172 total movies in the past four years. Now, this average rating is actually the highest that I've had at 2003. All of my ratings seem to be right around the same as I'm coming up with a 7.5 for this month or for this time of the year, you know, and this is the lowest technically as the highest was in 2018 at a 7.8 and this is the once again the third highest total as in 2019 I'd watched 96.55% where this is at 82.5% and last year looked like was at 85%. It's like the average year for July usually is about 1998. The average rating is about a 7.7. And then the average for horror is 80.72 if you kind of average out all four of those years. But then for my yearly totals, looking at 35 2021 watches, 191 horror movies, 244 movies total. And then 1998 is the average year. Average rating is 7.5 and percentage of horror is 78.28. I think that's all I really need to get you up to speed with here in this intro. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a brief break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini review of this week is going to be Take Shelter. This is from 2011. This is written and directed by Jeff Nichols. It stars Michael Shannon, Jessica Chastain, and Shay Wiggum. This is a drama sci-fi thriller. But many of us consider it to be a horror film as well, and it is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being plagued by a series of apocalyptic visions. A young husband and father questions whether to shelter his family from a coming storm or from himself. So this is another movie that I remember seeing the trailer for when I was working at Family Video, and it was one that sounded interesting, but for whatever reason, I never pulled the trigger. It is one that I've heard brought up a bit on podcasts, not one that you hear a lot about in general, though. I do think this also popped up in the horror show guide that I'm working through, which is the encyclopedia for horror movies that's kind of helping me round out for everything that you know I might otherwise not watch. So where I want to start is that this is an intriguing movie. Jamie and I watched this together as she thought it sounded interesting, and of course it's part of the Summer Challenge series, so I'm you know still working through the 2011 list. What is fun is that this movie is set in southern Ohio. We are both from the Midwest, so actual storms that we see in this movie are very similar to the ones that we've grown up with. Maybe not with the type of rain that they have coming down or what it does to people, but you know I digress. 
It is also fun to watch this movie around the same time that it is set in the summer. The storms that he envisions isn't necessarily real, especially with what it does, as I was saying, but we do get some strong ones, you know, being still in Ohio. I like this idea of exploring the psyche of Curtis, who is portrayed by Shannon. He is having nightmares and is hallucinating a bit at work. He is worried knowing that his mother has been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. I like the proactive approach that he takes. His wife of Samantha, who is portrayed by Jessica Chastain, schedules him a doctor's appointment. He goes to see a counselor for help as well. His problem, though, is that he seems to want a quick fix. He just wants him to prescribe a medication so he can go about his life. Now, it doesn't necessarily work that way when it comes to mental health. This makes him angry. He knows that some of the things that he has seen aren't real, but it's still doesn't stop him from continuing to prep for this, you know, possible storm. There is this worry in the back of his head, and what if he's right and the storm is actually coming? Now, surrounding them are his family and friends. Money is tight. This takes place back in the early 2010s where, you know, we were still in a recession. Samantha is doing what she can, you know, in order to make some extra money here. And he is, you know, the primary breadwinner for everything. It doesn't help that their daughter of Hannah is deaf and needs special attention. Curtis has a good job with insurance that helps, but what he's doing is putting that in jeopardy. Now, his friend of Dewart, who is portrayed by Wiggum, is also, you know, his friend. He's trying to stick by him, but Curtis's psychosis is shifting and causing a rift as well. Now, since I've already, you know, went a bit into the characters, I'll go next to the acting. Shannon is an actor that I'm a big fan of, and I think he does a great job here. He has a presence about him that just fits, and he's also scary when he gets angry, and part of it is due to his size. Chastain is another person that I like. She fits well as the counter to Curtis and can hold her own on the screen with him, which I think is something you definitely need in a movie like this. Stuart is interesting in that she is playing the daughter here, and she's actually deaf, so that adds a bit of realism to the character. I liked Wiggum, and then Katie Mixon is his wife in the movie. I thought the rest of the cast really rounded this out for what was needed. I also want to give special shout-outs to cameos of Ray McKinnon as Kyle, who is Curtis's brother, and then Vito Shaw, who is, you know, Red the Dog in this movie. Now, what also should point out here is that this is a slow one. It is one where it takes time to develop things. I do think this can be a bit of a problem for some people. The story and the performances pull me in, but it's one where we did have to pause this a couple of times just so we could stretch and you know, get snacks and stuff like that. I do think that it could have been sped up a bit to help move quicker, but I also understand the deliberately slower pace for you know when dealing with what we have here. So the last thing I want to go into would be the cinematography, the effects, and soundtrack. For the former, I think it's good. Jamie pointed out that we can't tell what is real and what is a dream since we aren't given that fuzzy focus. I'm not usually a fan of dream sequences, but this movie needed them. So it definitely works for me, and some of the CGI that we get here isn't great, but since they are hallucinations, I can actually let it slide. Aside from that, this isn't a movie that really needs a lot in the way of effects anyways. The soundtrack did fit for the atmosphere and the movie that you know kind of needs for this foreboding feeling. So in conclusion here, this is a solid movie overall. I like the concept of a normal man like Curtis who is descending into madness when he starts to have nightmares that are all too real feeling and then hallucinating. There is this history of mental illness in the family, so that fear makes it even worse. The acting is good across the board. I like how the movie is shot, and the soundtrack really helps to build that atmosphere that is needed. The CGI doesn't look great, but what is used, you know, makes sense, and I can give it a pass. We are getting a slow burn here. That could turn off some people, so be warned before coming into this one. But for me, this is an above-average movie after this first viewing. I do think that if it could have been sped up slightly, it might have came in higher for me. So my rating here for Take Shelter is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And then next I have Your Next. 
This is from 2011. This was directed by Adam Wingard. This was written by Simon Barrett, and it stars Sharni Vinson, Joe Swenberg, and A.J. Bowen. This is a horror thriller that is a co-production between the United States and the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being when the Davis family comes under attack during their wedding anniversary getaway. The gang of mysterious killers soon learns that one of the victims harbors a secret talent for fighting back. So this is a film that I saw not too long after it came out. I was no longer working at Family Video, and there's a good chance that my sister recommended it. It was one that was a pleasant surprise, though. I haven't seen it since then, so I was looking forward to give this a revisit. I just needed kind of a reason, so I have to thank Duncan for the podcast under the Sarah Summer Challenge series, as this appeared on the 2011 list. So this is an interesting take on the slasher film. We are getting everyone to a house that is out in the middle of nowhere, and we have unknown assailants trying to kill them. And then, you know, much like the synopsis stated, they get more than they bargain for when they encounter Aaron, who's portrayed by Vincent. What I find interesting is the characters themselves. I didn't like any of them from the beginning, aside from Aaron and then the parents that are staying at the house. Her boyfriend of Crispin, who is portrayed by Bowen, is another one that I was indifferent to about at first. Now, Aaron isn't from money. She is nice and good looking, and I think that Vincent plays his role, you know, good, which also helps here. Now, I'm a fan of Barbara Crampton, who plays the mother here, and then, so that might be why I like her. But on the contrary, her husband is portrayed by Rob Moran, who's usually a jerk. Both of them are accepting of Aaron, from what I can see. My issue, though, with Crispin is that he's dating a former student, which is a bit sleazy, as he was a college professor. The more we learn about him, the less I like him. Bowen does well in his performance, though. Then on the other side, we have Felix, his girlfriend of Z, and then Drake and his wife of Kelly. Felix seems nice enough, but we do get bits of his past through dialogue. He does some shady things, and he's another one that the more you learn, the less that he is likable. Now, I will give credit to the performance here from Nicholas Tucci. And then, you know, going along with this is his girlfriend of Z, who's just cold and rude to everybody, and I believe that Wendy Glenn plays that very well. Outside of that, we have Drake, who's an out-and-out jerk, and is the same for his wife of Kelly, with Drake being portrayed by Swanberg, and then we have Margaret Laney as the wife, and then these two, along with Felix, just seem like they're people that have grown up with money and look down on everyone else. Now, I don't want to spoil the movie and give away why they're being targeted, but I will say is that I like Aaron's backstory. Despite Crispin and her dating as... It points out to the fact that, you know, they're to the point where they're meeting his parents. He doesn't know much about her history, though. I love this idea that she grew up on a survivalist camp, and it would explain how she could fight back when these people that are hunting them who have military training. It is something that we don't see a lot of. Now, since this is a slasher film, I want to go next to the effects. From what I can tell, they decided to go practical, and they looked good. The wounds, attacks, and the blood are all solid. I had no issues there. And we also get to learn more about the backstory for Aaron, which is interesting. This reasoning makes sense as to why she knows how to set up the booby traps that are used as this goes along. Outside of that, I'd say the cinematography is good, and I had no issues there. So the last thing I would like to go into here would be the soundtrack. We have this reoccurring song that is used from the beginning. It is put on at Eric's house, and then we keep getting, you know, going back to that place where we get to hear it, and it's because it's on repeat. I don't remember it the first time that I saw it, but I will say that I enjoyed hearing it here. Aside from that, the rest of the soundtrack fit for what was needed for me. So then in conclusion here, this is a solid take on the slasher film that does something a bit different. I like that the characters that we have here are mostly unlikable. The acting helps to bring that to life. The kills that we get look good, and I like the effects that are used there. The explanation for the backstory to Aaron works for me. 
Soundtrack also fit for what was needed, with this reoccurring song being the standout. The last thing I would say is that I enjoyed the masks that they're wearing, as they're like different types of animal masks, and it just adds a layer of creepiness. This is a good movie to me, and one that I'll definitely go back to revisit, and would recommend, especially if you're a fan of slasher films. So my rating for your next is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then I also got to watch Coldfish. This goes by the original title of Sumenti Nagayo. This is written and directed by Sayan Sono, and he also had help with the writing with Yoshiki Takahashi. This stars Mitsuro Fukakoshi, Denden, and Asuka Kurosawa. This is a crime drama horror thriller that is from Japan. It is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, the lives of bored suburban couple are changed forever when a seemingly nice old man gives their daughter a job at his fish store, and soon his gruesome hobbies are brought to light. So this is a film that I'd never heard of until I was starting to do the movie club challenge for the podcast Under the Stairs. Duncan had selected this movie, and I was shocked by it in a good way. I liked it so much that I actually bought the Blu-ray from Arrow when I got my region-free player. It is one that I've been meaning to revisit, and now that I'm doing this as part of the Summer Challenge series for T-Puts as this popped up on the 2011 list. I didn't realize that this was actually based on a true story. Now, loosely. It's more kind of inspired. I did see that there was a couple that did start murdering people, but the story of the film is mostly fictional. Where I want to start would be the character of Shimoto, who was portrayed by Fukoshi. He starts off as a timid man who is living a normal life. His wife passed away, and his daughter is acting out due to him immediately marrying a younger woman of Takio, who was portrayed by... Migumi Kagurazaka. Now meeting the guy of Mirada, who is portrayed by Denden, gives her inspiration for more. He is content, but also blinded. Now Mirada bullies Shimoto into, you know, doing some things along with his wife of Akio, who is portrayed by Kurosawa. And everyone else pretty much in his life ends up bullying him at one point or another. So everyone has a breaking point, and it is interesting that I feel good for him for fighting back, but it also ruins him. Now, where I think I'll shift this next would be Mirada. He is a has a bigger shop than Shimoto. He is also flaunting his wealth. What is interesting here is the fact that Mirada is doing illegal things. He doesn't realize it at first, but Shimoto joins a meeting with a character by the name of Yoshida, who is portrayed by Taro Suwa. Shimoto is there to help convince him that the fish they want him to help Murata buy is worth millions of yen. Yoshida doesn't necessarily believe it. Murata is willing to kill for his lifestyle, and he's doing too much of that. He is in over his head, but there's also an interesting scene with Shimoto that makes me think the two of them were similar until Murata got greedy for more. Now, there isn't a whole lot to the story, but there's a lot of things that we need for the movie. So I'll be honest here, though. I do think this runs too long, as it goes over two and a half hours. Now, while I'm watching it, I try to figure out what you could cut, and it is quite difficult. Some of what we see I do think could be trimmed down a bit. Despite feeling how long this movie is, it doesn't necessarily feel like it. Now, from the moment that Shimoto meets Mirada, I can feel the tension rising and my anxiety going up, so I do have to give credit there. Now, from here, I want to take this over to the acting. Fuki Koshi is great. He feels like this character who is just a middle-aged, suburban father who is trying to keep his family together and run his business. He is also meeting a loose cannon like Mirada that changes everything. Now, speaking of Mirada, I love Denden's performance here as well. The energy that he brings, I believe he could convince people to do what they do. Kurosawa is good as Akio as well. Now, what I like about her is that she's attractive, but the more we get to know her, the crazier that we see she actually is. 
Kagurazaka is attractive as Taiko. I think she fits this role well along with Hikari Kaijiwara, who plays Shimoto's daughter of Mitsuko. And then we also have Tetsu Wanatabi, who is good as Takayashi Tsusu. Everyone, along with Shiwu and the rest of the cast, really just round this out for what was needed. So next I'll go to the effects. The first time I saw this movie, I wasn't expecting it to go where it did. What they show in this movie is great. I think the blood and gore looks amazing to the point where it almost feels real. It is surreal the first time and then becomes normalized, which fits the tone of the movie. I also think the cinematography is very well done on top of that, and we get some really good shots just to show how good of a cinematographer and a good an eye that Sion Soto has. So, the last thing I'll go into would be the soundtrack. The musical selections fit for what the movie needs. This also helps with the atmosphere, along with helping to raise the tension. Personally, I think this movie might not be as effective if not for that. There are also these drums that are used, so I could feel my heart rate going up when they're like drumming and with things that are going on on the screen. So aside from that, I thought the rest fit for what the movie needed. So in conclusion here, I thought this was a good movie the first time that I saw it, and I like it even more after the second viewing. We have a premise that we've seen before, but I think the performances bring these core group of characters to life. I wasn't expecting the effects to go as brutal as they did, and it was appreciated. This movie is shot well. It also has an atmosphere that builds tension to the ending. Overall, for me, this is a great movie. I will warn you that this is from Japan, so I did watch it with subtitles on. If that's an issue, I would avoid this. If not, I think this is a movie that is definitely worth seeing, and my rating here for Coldfish is going to be a 9 out of 10. And I also got to watch Old. This is from here this year in 2021. It was directed by M. Night Shyamalan, who also wrote this for the screen. But this does come from the graphic novel of Sandcastle by Pierre Oscar Levey and Frederick Peters. This stars Gail Garcia Bernal, Vicky Cripps, and Rufus Sewell. Now this is technically a drama mystery thriller, but I definitely think this kind of leans into the horror elements. This is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a family on a tropical holiday discovers that the secluded beach where they are relaxing for a few hours is somehow causing them to age rapidly, reducing their entire lives into a single day. So this is a movie that I caught a commercial for it. Now, since I don't watch trailers and realize this was the new Shyamalan movie, I knew that I would end up seeking it out, so I kind of just changed my attention to something else. This is one that Jamie came with me to see in the theater, Aside from that, I came in blind just knowing what the title was and then getting some ideas from that. Now, I am glad to see that Shyamalan is back on track for me. His last three movies have been solid. Not up to where he was earlier in his career, but that was just a really good run to start off like he had. Moving from there, this movie has an interesting premise. I'm a sucker for movies with time travel, and this one is doing something a bit different. This movie has a beach that is isolated from everything around it due to rocks. For whatever reason, there is a natural phenomenon that is causing anything on it to age rapidly. I think this is done well to explain why fingernails and hair aren't growing older, it's just living cells. And it also makes sense that children would show aging faster since we get to a certain look as an adult and we are there for a while, so I'm on board with this. Now where I want to shift next would be our characters that are kept here. Any time that they try to walk back through the rock path, they, are, they get dizzy and lightheaded. Anyone that tries to swim away runs into a similar issue. There is a comment about this beach and potentially being submerged underwater for like a long time earlier on and now it has you know been revealed to the world. This is brought up like it's trying to come up from underneath the water too fast and that's why there's too much pressure for them and it has those physical effects why they cannot escape. These rocks surrounding them are high and whatever is causing this is trapping them as well. I think this is a good enough explanation without going too far for me. 
And the last part of the story I want to discuss, I'm going to also have to tread lightly to avoid spoiling. Trent, who is the son here, notices that someone is watching them. Now, if you know me, I'm a big fan of social commentary in my movies. This one has a shift near the end to explain why things are done here that feels a bit too heavy-handed. I get the reasoning, though. It is something that makes me question if, you know, if something is good for the sake of others, if it's okay to risk the lives of few. This feels like Shyamalan is trying to be a bit too much like Hitchcock by having a reveal followed by an information dump. I don't hate the dump that they're trying to do, but it also doesn't fit as well as I think he wanted to. Now that is enough for the story, so I'll go over to the acting. I thought that Bernal and Kripes were fine. If I have any issues with their actions or anything that they do, it would be with the writing. I should slide in here that it gets a bit awkward at times. I do have to blame Shyamalan here as I think he's trying to be too witty and too smart. Sewell is good. There is a reveal to his character as to why he is here that I liked. He plays such a good villain as well. Now we have Alex Wolf and Thomason McKenzie play Trent and Maddox when they're a bit older. I thought they were both good. And then in this we also have Abby Lee, Nikki Amuka Bird, Ken Luong, Aaron Pierre, Francesca Eastwood, Gustav Hammerston. They're all solid along with the rest of the cast. Now I did want to state that it's interesting to see cameos by M. Beth Davidst and Iman Elliott as well. I won't reveal who they are, but I thought that was kind of a cool thing to play with. Then I think the last parts here that I want to go into would be the cinematography, effects, and soundtrack. For the former, it's good. I could tell watching this that it was a Shyamalan movie. He can craft his shots in such interesting ways. There is one time that I think he went a bit too artistic with it, and I, but I'm not going to hold that against the movie. As for the effects, I think they're solid for the most part. The framing helps here, especially when a reveal happens that people have gotten older. There are some subtle things done here with makeup and stuff that also work. Now there is a moment where a character has something that happens to them with CGI that I just didn't like and it didn't look good to me. I understand what they're doing there, but I just think they went too far. I like the idea, but not the execution. The soundtrack also worked and fit for what was needed. So then in conclusion here, I'll double down that I think Shyamalan is back on track. There is an interesting premise here, and I think that we are given just enough to explain it without going too far. I like seeing the struggle of our characters on this beach and how things play out. I will admit though, there is a social commentary that feels a bit forced in at the end, and because of that, I didn't necessarily love it. The acting was solid across the board, cinematography was well done, and there's only a moment of CGI that didn't sit well with me. For me though, this is still an above average movie overall, and I would recommend giving this a go. So my rating here for old is a 7.5 out of 10. And I also watched The Woman. This is from 2011. This is directed by Lucky McKee, who also helped write the novel with Jack Ketchum. This stars Pollyanna McIntosh, Brandon Gerald Fuller, and Lauren Ashley Carter. This is a drama horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being when a successful country lawyer captures and attempts to civilize the last remaining member of a violent clan that has roamed the northeast coast for decades. He puts the lives of his family in jeopardy. So this is a film that I heard about but took me a while to finally see. There was a sequel coming out, so I wanted to make sure that I saw the previous two films that you know preceded it, and that was the main reason then. I was intrigued to learn that this was from a Ketchum novel, because I know his stories can be quite brutal while exploring the darkness of humanity, and that'll be a phrase I bring up a few different times here. So kind of going off of that, though, Ketchum is somebody who writes stories that can be hard to stomach, but also can be based in reality. He likes to take the person that we think is normal and show us they have a terrible secret, which is something that we definitely get here. Now I'll admit, the first time that I saw this, I accidentally watched them out of order. 
I didn't realize that this was a sequel to Offspring, which would explain the scenes in the beginning, but to be honest, you really don't need to see them in order, as I don't think they necessarily have anything outside of maybe some backstory that kind of makes a little bit more sense. Now, I do like exploring the darkness of humanity here, though. We have Chris, who is a lawyer for the elderly and an estate planner. He is, you know, has a great career as he's helping those that tend to be taken advantage of in the elderly and those who don't have things in place when they pass. It is fitting when you see his intentions for the woman, though. I'm not going to sugarcoat it because we know what he wants the minute he lays eyes on her, and that is to have sex with her. He captures her under the guise of wanting to, you know, civilize her when we actually get very little of that. There are some dark things that he is doing to his family as well, which are ruining them. The film really explores who is the monster here. The one who ha doesn't have morals and is just surviving, or the one who knows better and feels justified in their actions, which kind of feels like a modern day take on Cannibal Holocaust. Now for this film being 101 minutes long, it doesn't necessarily feel like it. It does move at a good pace through things. If anything, I think there are some things that could be explored a little bit more, and I do think that the film does build tension to an interesting conclusion. There is a reveal at the end though that I felt a little bit blindsided by that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The only thing that I can think here is that Chris has an idea of a perfect life and family, so if it doesn't work out with his plan, he kind of does some things to punish people, and I did like how this one ends. Now as to the acting, I thought it was fine. Macintosh is great as the woman. She has to do everything with body language and grunts because, you know, she's uncivilized as been living off of the land her whole life, so she doesn't know English. She does have a menacing look about her as things are happening. I think it's satisfying that she gets to do what she does in the end. Plus, we get to see her nude, so if that's something you are interested in. I'm a big fan of Carter, even though this might have been the first film that I ever saw her in. She is quite cute, and I think her performance is interesting, as you can tell early on that she's harboring a secret. I think her acting is low-key there, which works great. The same can be said for Bettis, who does a solid job here as the mother. And that's Angela Bettis, by the way. And then we have Sean Bridgers, who plays the father here of Chris. I knew there was something up about him from the beginning and he was just off. I thought his performance was fine. He is such a monster, but I do think he kind of overacts a bit and it doesn't necessarily sit well with me. Zach Rand is very similar as well as his son. I love the idea that Ketchum plays with here that boys will be boys. So they're allowed to do whatever they want, but if the girls do, there's something wrong here and the father belittles them. The rest of the cast does round this out for what was needed for me. So that brings me to the effects of the film, which are good. I thought this was a bit more low-key than I was expecting. The effects that we get are done practically, which I'm a big fan of. There really isn't a lot of them until, you know, towards the climax. The blood that we get does look really good, and the film is just pretty brutal overall. And I thought it was shot well on top of that. So if I do have an issue with this movie, it's with the soundtrack. The songs that were selected don't necessarily work for me. I like that the words make sense to the point they're trying to get across at times, but they do take me out of the film with how much louder they are. They actually are songs that I would probably listen to outside of the film, to be perfectly honest, but doesn't necessarily work in the grand scheme overall. After the second viewing, I do think some of them do work a bit better than I was you know, originally thinking. I still have issues here, though. So with that said, I do enjoy this film for as much as you can. I like to explore the depravity of humanity and how, as a species, we actually are pretty garbage. Being that this could be one of our neighbors is quite frightening while also being possible, I do like how broken this family is by the actions of the father, even though he thinks he's doing perfect. I like how the film progresses, but I'm not the biggest fan of the reveal at the end. I did like the acting, I thought that was pretty solid across the board, the effects were as well, but we just don't get as much as I would have expected. The soundtrack, even though I like the songs, don't necessarily work for me. 
This is technically a sequel, but from what I saw, you can view this on its own, and I think this is pretty interesting, but I'd say it's slightly above average for me. It isn't the most intense film, but I would keep that in mind coming in, you know, if you can't handle any sort of, like, blood and gore or anything like that. So my rating here for The Woman is going to be a 7 out of 10. And that's all I have for mini-reviews for this week, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Thank you so much for coming to our little group. Thank you. This is a good bite. Lots of chocolate chips. Oh, <laughs> oh what? every night and tries to kill us. We're just gonna leave him? Oh, I'm sure he's already gone. You said a man comes into our house... Every night... and tries to kill us. <laughs> hey, put it together. What? Alone, isolated, a man could appear at any time. He keeps coming back. He should be dead. This man could be anywhere. I just don't know what I would do in that situation. Sure is scary. Very. I'm sorry, I come at a bad time. I tried to call, but... If I told you that something supernatural was happening, would you believe me? We are being attacked. There's no rationalizing it. No saving us. So get used to it. And for my first featured review of this week is going to be Lucky. This is from here in 2020. This was directed by Natasha Kermani. It was written by Bria Grant, who also starred in this, along with. Daruv Uday Singh and Yasmin El Bustami. This movie also features Hunter C. Smith, Siobhan Michelle, Leith M. Burke, Kassar Mohammed, Larry Cedar, Grace Yee, Kristen Kleb, Carmen Angelica, Tara Perry, Chase Williamson, Susan Kemp, Shelley Squandrani, Nakia Gamby Turner. Jesse Merlin and Sarah Perdome. This is a drama fantasy horror thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a suburban woman fights to believed as she finds herself stalked by a threatening figure who returns to her house night after night. When she can't get help from those around her, she is forced to take matters into her own hands. So this is a movie that I first heard about as I believe last year it premiered on Shudder for one night on Halloween. I think that is what happened here with this one. It is now getting a full wide release here in 2021 so I figured I would watch it for my podcast as you can tell as it being here. But this is one that I've heard a few reviews about and knew some things coming in but I like to keep an open mind to make my own de- decisions here. So before I get into the movie itself the director of Kermani is still new to the game. She has six credits total. This is the only one that is technically horror. I did want to see Imitation Girl when I saw the trailer, but I still haven't got around to seeing that yet. I do believe that came to the Gateway Film Center, but I just think I might have been too busy in order to, you know, watch it and everything like that. Then we have Grant as our writer here who has six credits. Her first was a short from 2019 called Megan 26. 
She followed it with a movie I saw last year of 12-hour shift before this movie here. Now, she does have another one called The Atrocities Being Made, and that means so far I've seen both of her features in horror. As an actress, she has 46 credits. 23 of them are horror. Her first was Midnight Movie back in 2008. I remember seeing the case for this at Family Video, but I never did pull the trigger there. Now, I have seen her in things like Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. She was in Dead Night. All the Creatures Were Stirring. After Midnight from last year, and now this movie are all the ones that I have seen her in. Now, her co-star of Sing has six credits. This is the only horror movie and the only one that I've seen. Then finally, we have Al Bustami. Now, she has eight acting credits. Of them, two are in horror. The first was a short from 2015 called Angie plus Zara. So I have seen her only horror feature, and that's the only thing that I have seen her in as well. So for this, we start off with our main character of May, as she is played by Grant, and she is talking to her literary agent of Rob, who is portrayed by Leith M. Burke. It appears that her latest book isn't selling as well, so they're holding off on the moment about taking on her next one. The news isn't great, but there isn't much that May can do. She goes to her car in the parking garage, but as she's going to do that, she drops a box of books that she is carrying and thinks she hears someone scream. Then at home, she spends time with her husband of Ted, who is portrayed by Singh. He is a philosophy professor at the local college. What I notice here is that they have an odd relationship that feels a bit troubled. That night, they have something else to worry about. May hears a dog barking and keys jingle in the middle of the night. She looks into the backyard to find a man, and he is portrayed by Smith. She wakes up Ted to tell him, and he confirms that the man comes every night to kill them. He seems calm about this, and May is not. He does get out of bed as the man breaks in, and Ted ends up killing the guy, and May calls the police, but the problem is when they go to look for him, the body is gone. The next morning, May inquires to Ted about what he said the night previous. He confirms what he said, and that she didn't imagine the man coming to try to kill them. She doesn't understand how he is so calm about all this, and it causes them to fight. This fight causes Ted to leave, and ignores May's calls. She tries to get to the bottom of this man, and why he keeps showing up, we learn that this might not be an isolated incident, and it could be much more to what is happening here. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap, as that gets you up to speed with this, as it's kind of hard to describe, you know, too much without going into spoilers here, but I also don't feel like I need to necessarily go past more of what I've done. Where I want to start, though, is that I'm a fan of Grant, who wrote this story, and I think she has some interesting premise here. We have this man who shows up every night, trying to kill May, and Ted knows about it. There is a surreal feel here as well. May tells what happens to an Officer Mercy, who is betrayed by Michelle, and then Officer Pace also hears about it on, you know, subsequent nights, and he is portrayed by Cedar. They don't seem to do anything with the information, though. It makes it even worse when Officer Pace, you know, mansplains things to her. Ted does this as well. It does get quite frustrating to May, which is, you know, understandable. I do have a problem with this, though. Without spoiling where their movie goes, it is heavy-handed allegory for what women have to deal with. It is a story about how women have to be vigilant in this world. As a male, it is something that I didn't realize and had to learn through discussions you know, with my partner along with other women in my life. It is said that this is the world that we live in and this movie is really saying how we need to be better. I just think this could have been presented a bit in a you know more palatable type way. This is a movie that I think women can appreciate for the message. I appreciate it for that, but it just hurts the message though when it's... You know, not making it where a wider audience can enjoy this, in my opinion. I do recognize that this doesn't matter, though, as well. A movie made by women for women. From there, I'll shift this over to the acting, then. Our star here of Grant does great. 
I like how she takes on the character, and it is interesting in that there's a surreal feel of everyone around her while she is grounded, and it gives it a distorted feeling that the movie you know needs, and it fits. Sing is fine, but falls into what I just said. That doesn't hurt the movie, though. I thought that Al Bustami as Edie was solid as May's assistant, Muhammad as Sarah, who is May's sister-in-law as well. Now, she is interesting with how she acts and relays information in regards to her brother, Ted. I also liked cameos by Kleb as a woman at a book signing, and then we also have Williamson as Charlie the Medic. I thought the cast was fine for what was needed here. Then really the last thing to go into would be the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. For the former, it does look like this movie went practical with what they could, you know, for the effects. I'm a big fan there and it looked good. We get a solid amount of blood that worked. This movie is shot very well. It also helps with building that surreal feel. Aside from that, the soundtrack was interesting. We get songs that the lyrics end up fitting for what we're seeing on the screen, and I did like that. And we also get this sound of keys jangling that is associated with the man who is appearing. That actually makes a lot of sense for the reveal, and it's also quite creepy because you know, we know where things are going to end up going from there. Now, when I was looking on the IMDb for like trivia and everything, the only thing that was on there, I don't really think... I think it's somebody making a stretch about there is, you know, a large, you know, kitchen knife that is used in this, and they're trying to correlate it back to Halloween 2. I think it's a bit of a stretch, as this is more of just like a slasher-type trope. So then I would say that in conclusion, I think this movie has a good message. I just don't love how it is presented. I do understand that as a male, I won't be able to fully understand the feeling that May or the other women are experiencing. For me, though, I think the delivery could have been handled better so it could have hit a wider audience. The acting is good though. Grant does a solid job as May, and I thought the rest of the cast really just kind of builds this interesting, surreal feel around her. This is also aided by the cinematography and the soundtrack. The effects we also get look good here. With my issues, I think this movie is just over average, and it's just lacking for anything for me to personally go higher. So my rating here for Lucky is going to be a six out of 10. And since I'm not gonna do a spoiler section here, what I'm gonna go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. You need Mrs. Stapleton and her spirits to help you. <laughs> I wonder what happened to that little book she left here. No, that, that one on spiritualism. I don't know, darling. I thought you took it. Oh, I thought you did. No. I wonder if... What's the yes. Oh, nothing. What are you doing? Praying. I thought so. Well, you better take care. You mean to go on praying? Yes. You think it'll do any good? Yes. Well, I warned you. I'm not afraid. Laurie, I'm not frightened anymore. Not for myself. Only for you. 
I don't know if you can hear me or if you're listening. But I want to help you with everything that's in me. Because I love you. I never thought I'd say that to you. I remember telling your mother I never would. Lots of people love you, Lori. But I want you to know that someone loves you specially. More than anything in the world. I have to tell you. Lori. Do you know? Love. Costs out fear. And for my second featured review and my last 1941 film that I need to watch is The Spell of Amy Nugent. This is directed by John Harlow. The screenplay was written by Miles Mallison. The story was written by Hugh Benson. And this also comes from the novel The Necromancer that was written by Robert Benson. This stars Derek Farr, Vera Lindsay, and Hay Petrie. While also having Felix Almer, Frederick Leister, Marion Spencer, Diana King, W.G. Fay. Winifred Davis, Enid Hewitt, Glib McLaughlin, Joyce Redman, Cameron Hall, Irene Handel, Stafford Hilliard, and Hannon Schaefer. This is a drama horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a... doesn't look like there's enough ratings actually on Letterboxd, but it looks like it's hovering between like a two-star and a three-star film. So the synopsis here is a young man's fiance dies after contracting a terminal illness and in his efforts to contact her, he gets involved with a group of spiritualists. So this is, as I said, the last one from 1941 that I need to see in the horror genre. This is the one that took a bit of searching, but I did find a solid copy of it on YouTube. Aside from that, I saw the title and some of the alternate titles that this went by, which is what I'm going to bring up now, which is it looks like the original title was Spellbound. But for the U.S. release, the title was changed to avoid confusion with the Alfred Hitchcock film. And 19 minutes were also trimmed from the length, which I really wonder what version of this I actually got to see. And then I guess really the only other piece of trivia that was also listed on there is that this is the first cinema film of Joyce Redman. And I also thought this kind of made an interesting double feature as well with Lucky. So before I get into the movie, let me do some featured notes here. Is that our director of Harlow has 17 credits. It doesn't look like... I've seen any of his work aside from this, and this is also his only horror film. We also have the screenplay writer of Mallison. It actually looks like he was more of an actor as he had 138 credits there and then 49 in writing. This is the only horror film that I've seen from him, and actually this is the only one that he wrote on top of that. I did see him as an actor, though, in Peeping Tom, which I did cover last year here on the podcast, and he also was involved with some Hammer films, it looks like, as well as Stage Fright from 1950, which is interesting because I believe that is a Hitchcock film as well. Then the story was written by Hugh Benson, and he has 12 credits. This, again, is the only one in horror, and this is the only one that I've seen. Then a writer of the novel of Robert Benson, this is the only horror adaptation of any of his works. And the only other thing that I saw was that he was working on a television series from Sweden called Regen Bagslandet. Probably mispronounced that, but it looks like that it was a show that wasn't very good and didn't have a very long run. And then as for our cast, our lead here of Far has 39 credits. This is his first in horror, and he didn't come back to the genre until 1966 with The Projected Man. This is one that I haven't heard of until now, and it doesn't look like I've seen him in anything else. Then his co-star of Lindsay, this is her only acting credit. And then Petrie, though, was in quite a bit with 61 films. Only two were in horror. 
His first was The Ghost Goes West from 1935, which is another one that I haven't heard of. It looks like he did a lot of takes on classics, though, with, like, Great Expectations as his most well-known film that he was in. He was also in A Canterbury Tale. And then again, he also got to work with Hitchcock with a movie called Jamaica Inn, which I'm pretty sure that I've seen, but I don't fully remember or not. So for this movie, we are starting off with Diana Hilton, who is portrayed by Lindsay, as she's coming to visit with Mrs. Baxter, who is portrayed by Davis. The older woman has hopes that Diana will marry her son, and they go out to meet him as he's working on his horse out at the stables. His name is Laurie Baxter, and he's portrayed by Farr. He comes across a bit cold, but does agree to come to dinner with the two women. From there, Diana and Mrs. Baxter head into town. They go to a local store where they meet with the daughter of the owners of Amy Nugent, who is portrayed by King. She is home from school to help her parents. We also learn that she's a bit sickly. As these two women leave, Lori rides by on his horse. Later, we learn that Lori in secret has been seeing Amy and he wants to marry her. When he reveals this to his mother, she's quite upset. As they have a reputation, so this would be him marrying below his ranking. Things take an odd turn, though. Lori goes to see Amy, but her parents, who are portrayed by Hall and Handel, refuse him. They send for him later, though. The problem is that once they do, it is revealed that Amy has become ill, and the doctor reveals when he gets there that she has passed away. Then a Miss Stapleton, who is portrayed by Spencer, comes to visit with Mrs. Baxter, and she ends up leaving a book behind. Lori investigates, and it gives him an idea. As the book is about, like, spiritualism, about doing seances and speaking with the dead. He wants to seek out this Mr. Vincent, who is portrayed by Leicester, who holds these seances. He doesn't believe it will work, but after meeting with this man, he loses two hours of time and is kind of spooked by what has happened. Mr. Vincent reveals that a spirit inhabited his body. This terrifies him even more, but it also kind of intrigues him because he thinks he has a shot here to talk to Amy. When Laurie reveals this information to his friend of Mr. Morton, who is portrayed by Ulmer, he wants his friend to abandon this exploration. It does seem that Laurie is really into, like, science and everything, and he almost wants to explore the spiritualism to see if there is kind of, like, a scientific basis to everything that is being done here, where Mr. Morton doesn't believe this is possible. So, he even goes as far as to reach out to his friend of Mr. Cathcart, who is portrayed by Petrie, who has studied a bit of spiritualism at some time. Now, Mr. Cathcart becomes quite concerned when he realizes that his old friend, uh, Mr. Vincent, is involved. And these two have a history, and he's really kind of determined to help get Laurie away from what he is looking into. I believe that's where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie. And where I want to start would be breaking it down is that this movie is, as I said, based off a novel. And seeing the title of it being The Necromancer is interesting. Now, this isn't surprising that it's being based off of, you know, a source material as... A lot of movies, you know, from this era as I brought up previously, is that's what they kind of do. But I find it interesting is that the depth of story that we get here and the ideas that they're exploring. They are presented in a way where, I mean, we're still seeing stuff like this subject matter 80 plus years after the fact, which is kind of crazy to think about. At the core of this, we are getting a love story that turns into a drama. Laurie has fallen for Amy, but she is, you know, beneath him. He is a gentleman and his mother wants him to marry a lady. When Diana shows up, that complicates things. I like that this movie introduced that Amy was sickly as a child, so when she passes, it makes sense. Laurie's love for her is strong, and when he sees a chance to talk to her, he takes it. He is spooked by some of the things that turn him off on it. Now, he does end up getting pressured by Mr. Vincent, which makes him a subtle villain, and that was a pretty good setup for me. So there's also the idea here that I remember seeing in The Exorcist. Mr. Morton doesn't believe what this group is doing is real. It is Mr. Cathcart that points it out that he studied it and worked with Mr. Vincent. He confirmed that what he is doing does have results. 
it's just more difficult to prove with normal science, and you really kind of have to be there. The reason I brought up this horror classic in The Exorcist, though, is that just because whatever you're communicating with states that it is someone you believe or someone that you want to talk to doesn't make that real. Mr. Cathcart tries to tell Lori that whatever responded claims to be Amy doesn't mean that it's actually Amy. So that really kind of caught my attention there. And the last aspect of the story that I want to delve into is Lori and his love life. I've already laid out the players here. He wants Amy, but death complicated that. Diana is interested in him, and he actually develops interest for her. When he decides not to dabble with these forces anymore, he doesn't understand, and the two of them spend a lot of time together. I think this aspect of the story is developed well. My only issue would be how things end here. Diana and her knowing that Laurie is doing are interested in as well. I would like to say next that I want to go over to the acting. Far as solid as Laurie, I see a bit of myself in him. Now, he is indecisive, which I definitely am, and this is even worse after Amy passes. He doesn't want to move on, and I can't fully blame him there. And I mean, I've had relationships end where I needed some time before I could move on. And that's really what he needs is just time. Where I see myself, though, is that Mr. Vincent guilts him into doing this seance. It is also interesting that we learn that Laurie can help prove what he believes to be true. So I can't fully blame Mr. Vincent for, you know, pushing Laurie to come to these experiments. And then Lindsay is solid as Diana. I liked Petrie and Elmer for their roles as, you know, these two friends to Lori. Well, I mean, at least Almer is, and, you know, Petrie is there to help out his friend's friend. Leicester does make a solid villain in Mr. Vincent. Now, from there, I'd say the rest of the cast just kind of rounded this movie out for what was needed. So then the last thing I want to go into here would be the cinematography, effects, and soundtrack. This movie looked to be shot well and fit for the era. We don't get a lot in the way of effects, but like I said... We don't need a whole lot for these type of movies either. I did like what they did with this ghostly apparition that does appear. It looks solid enough for the period that was made. The soundtrack didn't really stand out to me, but I do have to say the copy I watched wasn't in the greatest shape, so it is hard to hold this against the movie too much. It doesn't help that this is foreign and my subtitles were computer generated, so I was reading some things and definitely confused as to what was being said there. And accents were a little bit thick, so I did, you know, try to rely on those, but probably would have been better off just turning those off, to be honest. So then in conclusion here, I thought this was an interesting movie. The premise is something that we are still seeing today, which makes it, you know, kind of an early in this subgenre. There has some historical significance for that, and I also like what they're doing with it. I think we developed the characters enough, so I give credit to the acting there. The cinematography is solid along with what effects we do get. The movie is a bit slow, if I'm going to be honest, and the soundtrack didn't sound the greatest. I would like to find a cleaned up copy to see if that might help. But for me, this movie is over average and falling just short of going above that due to some of my issues here. So my rating for The Spell of Amy Nugent is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. Now I've already shared all the trivia that I had for this movie and I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really feel like it needs it. So I'm going to get you over to one last brief break before I close out the show. And I'd like to welcome you back one last time. And then just to close everything out here for episode number 91 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. If you'd like to send me an email, you can send that at to journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have read on the show. Just let me know in that email there. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's reviews of the dead. And that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, that's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, it's David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the horror reviews as well as all the non-horror reviews on that. 
If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, that's DavidOSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that is Journey with a Cinephile. Now over there, I'll be kind of posting what I'm watching as well as posting the movie posters of any movie that I am doing a review for. And then just to make everything easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. As well as you're able to rate and review just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like and make this the best show possible. So I do have to admit, I did lie a little bit because I thought I watched all the movies that I could find. I ended up finding a fairly cheap copy of another 1941 horror movie. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to watch that and that is old mother riley's ghost that is the one that will be the officially the last one from 1941 because i did do a you know quick check one more time and found that the other two i could not find and then what i'm gonna go ahead and do is actually pull the trigger on getting the arrow player and watch a ghost weights and have you know a kind of a ghost double feature there so i think that is about the extent of what i need to get you up to speed with for the featured reviews as that's going to be another odyssey through the ones episode and then I'll continue to watch more of the movies from the Summer Challenge series as well to, you know, round out and fill out everything there. So I think that's everything I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say in closing here is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 